Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. As a parent, you're always thinking about the health and safety of your children. But what happens when the place you call home is making your child sick? Today, we talk about lead poisoning. After 1978, lead paint was banned, but it still exists in older homes, especially in our region. Coming up, we talk to a Connecticut mother whose child had high levels of lead in her blood. What should families know about this toxin? We'll find out just ahead. And we'll talk with Jennifer Frank. She's reported on a number of stories about lead poisoning in our state for CHIT, the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. Jennifer Frank joins us on Zoom today. Jennifer, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Lucy. You can join our conversation to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Jennifer, let's start uh, and break it down from having you describe exactly what is lead poisoning. Lead is a natural ingredient in the world, and um, it was used, is still used in many, many ways um, with many products. And when it is in water, as what happened in Flint, Michigan, a number of years ago, um, or in paint, um, it, it there is no there is no safe level of lead. And what happens when it's in paint is that as the paint ages as it degrades it chips and young children can ingest it inhale it or uh, actually put uh, the sweet tasting chips in their mouths and it causes it enters the bloodstream and causes all sorts of problems including um, harm to a child's cognitive ability there's an irreversible loss of iq points it's also, uh, lead is also linked to speech and developmental delays, hyperactivity, hearing loss, behavioral problems. And that's in children, Lucy. It's, um, it is a danger to adults too. There's kidney damage, potential uh, cardio damage. Uh, pregnant women should avoid it. Women who want to become pregnant. I mean, it's, it's an all around villain. Mm. Now, when you talk about it being in all sorts of products, uh, lead, uh, lead paint uh, that was banned after 1978, but lead was also, some, is it still being used in gasoline? Well, no, it was banned okay. in gas in uh, 1996, I believe. But when lead is banned, when it's outlawed, it doesn't just disappear, it lingers. Mm. And even though we haven't had leaded gasoline permitted in cars for um, what 40 years that is I'm bad with math uh, mm-hmm. it's in the dirt it's still mm-hmm. it, it settles into the dirt and um, kids play in the dirt or uh, people track it into the house 
And um, as, it, same with paint, it does not just the lead in leaded paint does not disappear. And in mm. paint, it was used for oh, it, well, it, it, lead has been in paint for many, many years uh, in the United States for at least 75 years. It was a common element. So you and I probably have some lead in our blood, Jennifer, but when we think about dangerous levels, what does the CDC uh, consider as lead poisoning? How much of this toxin is in our blood to be considered poisoned by lead? Well, the CDC in, in 2012 um, changed the way they uh, uh, regulate lead. Prior to that, they had said um, over the years, uh, the federal government had said, uh, that uh, today what we know are extremely high levels of lead in the blood, um, you know, 80, 70, 60 micrograms per deciliter of blood uh, was uh, cause for action. In 2012, um, after dropping it uh, uh, even further, but in 2012, the CDC said, look, no level of lead is safe for children, none. But they said that uh, five micrograms should be the um, uh, a, a, the cause for investigation, uh, the action level. And so they recommended anything, anytime a child, uh, a child's blood test showed more than five, mic five micrograms or higher, there should be an investigation. Mm. Now, it's as I mentioned, you've- uh, that poisoning, excuse me. Now, Jennifer, you've been reporting on lead poisoning uh, for many years. And so I imagine the state gathers data on uh, children with lead exposure. You know, what do we know about where lead poisoning is highest in our state? It's highest in cities. That's an easy one. Um, uh, you really, since lead poisoning is so linked to housing, you look at where the older housing is, you look at how well it's maintained, and the larger cities have uh, generally 80% of their housing was built before 1980, um, which means that uh, all those homes uh, were probably painted with leaded paint, and even though it was painted over. Um, and there's generally little maintenance in these in these cities, uh, in the poorer cities. So that's a that's a double whammy. But Lucy, there's um, uh, there are problems all over Connecticut. I mean, we we're an older state. New England is old, and you know, in the older towns. Um, there's inevitably going to be problems there too. Just incidentally, any home that was built before 1950, the EPA says, just assume that there's leaded paint there. Mm. You're hearing Jennifer Frank, again, a freelance writer uh, who's reported on lead poisoning for years for CHIT, the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. If you have a question about lead poisoning, you can join us, 888-720-9677. As Jennifer outlined, especially uh, something to be worried about um, if you have uh, young children. I know uh, when we bought our house here up in uh, Suffield, Connecticut, we live in an old farmhouse built in 1859. And so uh, because of 
the line of work that I'm in, I was uh, definitely uh, watching out for certain things and taking certain precautions. And we'll be talking further uh, with a social worker um, who works with families uh, that have children with lead exposure uh, about some of the things uh, that you can do uh, and think about if you live in an older home. Uh, but looking at your reporting, Jennifer, when we think about our biggest cities it, it, from 2017 data, New Haven, uh, Connecticut, um, having um, children with uh, lead exposure, followed by Bridgeport, Waterbury, Hartford. So what are these cities doing uh, to raise awareness and to respond to these families? Well, uh, it, it, that's a, a good question. And there are, um, it, it really depends. The State Department of Public Health has done outreach campaigns. I know that a number uh, of doctors I spoke with speak highly of DPH's efforts. Um, but uh, there's... There are federal programs that will help people if they need to remediate. If, but what happens, the situation, Lucy, is that most of this is reactive. Mm -hmm. um, a child is used as a, uh, the proverbial canary in the coal mine. If a child uh, has his or her annual checkup at one or two and their lead levels are elevated, then yeah, they have to be elevated enough in Connecticut that that requires the city's health departments to get involved and to, to investigate and uh, to send literature. Um, but the whole process, as I, I believe uh, Casey from Yale will explain, is very complicated. And there's so many different parts to this that uh, it often doesn't happen. Mm. And when we think about uh, the older housing stock, especially in our cities, uh, tell us more about the exact people that are impacted by lead poisoning. Are we talking about communities of color, Jennifer? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, that's uh, low income people of color are are definitely uh, uh, disproportionately the victims. I mean, the the State Department of Public Health itself will say that uh, uh, their 19, excuse me, 2017 data shows that far, far fewer Blacks and Hispanics are even screened. 13% um, of Blacks were screened that year, and yet, and uh, about 25% of, of Latinos, yet they are usually the victims. So, I don't think that DPH efforts or local efforts are really doing the trick. They're not reaching the people who need to be reached. The, the family that I spoke with uh, for my most recent story, they hadn't heard of lead. And that's not unusual. It's not unusual um, among anybody that uh, if people think about it, they still assume that, uh, oh, didn't that go away? Didn't we handle that? Um, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the families uh, in your most recent story for CHIT, some of those families were English is a second language. That's correct. And, um, and uh, I am not saying for that family, but a lot of these families, um, it's, it's, tough for them. They don't understand the system. Um, they can 
get short shrift in so many ways. They are quite literally at the mercy of landlords who can say, you know, you don't like it, you can leave, even though mm -hmm. that's not legal, it happens. And um, there's really, they're, they're just victims uh, of, of the system, I think is probably the best way to put it. You're hearing Jennifer Frank again, a freelance writer who's reported on lead poisoning for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. Coming up, we hear from a staff member at a program that treats children. And later we hear from a Connecticut mother who talks about the moment she found out her child had high levels of the toxin in her blood. Now, if you own or rent, what do you know about lead? What questions do you have about it? You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Now today we're talking about lead poisoning and the risk to children. My guest is Jennifer Frank. She's reported on lead poisoning for years and has found that lead poisoning damages the health and development of thousands of, hundreds of thousands of children across the U.S. every year, including thousands here in Connecticut. For more, joining us now is Casey Merrill, a licensed clinical social worker at Yale Children's Hospital, and she works at the regional Lead Treatment Center. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we heard Jennifer talk about some of the consequences, what happens when children ingest lead. But could you go further? When lead is absorbed into the human body, uh, what are some of the ways that it gets into our body and what happens to children especially? Yeah, so it's actually really um, easy for children to ingest lead um, just based on whether or not they're meeting their developmental milestones. So um, children that are toddler age and they're learning how to walk, they're very curious about their environment. They want to touch everything. They want to um, put their toys in their mouth. Um, they're just generally very curious um, at that age. And so when there is a fine layer of lead-based dust or lead-based paint chips lying around the house um, and they're crawling through it or they're playing on a windowsill with their action figures or their Barbie dolls and then they put that toy in their mouth, it's a, a direct um, hand-to-mouth behavior that really can easily cause um, ingestion of lead. Mm -hmm. That's really scary to think about how easy it is for them to ingest uh, lead. You know, I was thinking about paint chips when I moved into my house, but, but even the dust that can be difficult to see can be ingested. Yes, definitely. Um, and what we see typically with lead-based dust, it's, a, like I said before, a really thin layer. It's almost invisible to the naked eye. Um, but if you live in a house that was built prior to 1978 and um, there was construction that was done to it um, and it wasn't completed by someone that is an RRP or lead certified contractor, it's likely that um, they kicked up some residual lead um, at the, the base of the structure and then they did not dispose of that properly. So um, that's kind of where we see a lot of lead-based dust come from. Mm. And so when we think about uh, children who are ingesting and this lead and children that you treat uh, at Yale a Children's Hospital, uh, tell us about some of the developmental impacts. 
Yeah, it's it's really heartbreaking to see. Um, you know, there are a lot of kids who I see with speech and language issues, um, expressive speech disorder, behavioral issues, um, some ADHD, um, and you know, just just kids who fail their hearing, um, they fail their hearing test and vision tests, and they're developmentally delayed. They're um, not on track with the rest of the kids in their grade. Um, and like Jennifer had said before, those those issues are irreversible. Um, it's really, really difficult to make up for that lost time that was caused by lead um, damage. I guess this speaks to the importance of having regular screenings for, for lead. And so, Casey, can you walk us through you know, how often is it, it mandated in Connecticut that pediatricians are screening for lead uh, for children of a certain age? And, you know, what is the reality in terms of how often uh, th- these screenings are happening? Yeah, it is. I believe it is mandated in Connecticut, but um, a child should be tested for lead at their one year and two year well child checkups. Um, Typically, when you bring your child into the pediatrician, they will do um, a point of contact. So like a a finger prick or a toe prick. um, And that's sort of the screening. So if that is elevated, um, then they will go in with a venous blood draw. So that's with a needle directly into the vein um, to collect a blood sample. And then that will be sent to a lab and tested for lead. It will be considered elevated if it's any higher than five micrograms per deciliter. Um, that's what we kind of consider um, lead poisoning. And you know, there's no, like Jennifer also said before, there's no healthy amount of lead that should be um, in the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer Frank, in your reporting, uh, when we think about screening twice before the age of three, is that happening consistently? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, it it um, uh, DPA says that, uh, now this is three, almost four years ago, uh, about 55% of kids were, uh, were tested and um, as Casey said, it should be done twice before a child reaches three. And the problem is now it's exacerbated, as so much is, by the pandemic because parents uh, and guardians are putting off bringing their kids to pediatricians. They didn't want to bring them in. So kids are missing uh, this screening now. And a number of the lead direct, the health directors I spoke with, in Connecticut say they expect a spike uh, once things uh, get back uh, to at least semi-normal. But no, it's not happening and it's not happening um, the way it should and it's not, uh, which is twice before a child reaches three and it's not happening um, in our minority communities anywhere near the extent to which it should be happening. Mm. So Jen, uh, what is the response from the State Department of Public Health uh, in terms of monitoring this and just trying to raise awareness? Uh, they, they point to certain things that they have done, such as uh, when the CDC uh, uh, lowered its definition of when action is required uh, to investigate how a child is being lead poisoned, Connecticut followed suit and also lowered its uh, definition of lead poisoning. 
uh, but they did not follow suit in terms of taking action. They still, under Connecticut law, um, despite a number of efforts by advocates and others to change this, Connecticut still waits for children to be three or four times as poisoned, if you will, before they'll actually investigate. And I, I, from what I hear, you know, that often doesn't happen. The investigation does not occur. Uh, but even by law, they don't, uh, the state doesn't require this, um, unlike other states. And I, I, Lucy, I just wanted to do an addendum to what Casey said. Um, uh, yes, these delays are irreversible in many, many cases. Um, a recent study that came out by Case Western Reserve University did one of the rare long-term studies of the effects of lead. And they looked at 10,000 children from Cleveland and followed them for 20 years. And this, uh, this continues, this, um, this problem with catching up and uh, continues throughout the child's adolescence, children's adolescence, and into their early adulthood. They never catch up, in other words, and uh, they have significantly worse outcomes on school success, uh, a higher rate of adverse effects in adolescence and adulthoods, and the the difference between those who were um, uh, who had elevated and those who did not, uh, blood levels, that is, is significant. Mm. You're hearing Jennifer Frank again, uh, who's reported on lead poisoning for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. She's here on Where We Live to talk about this important issue, as well as Katie, Casey Merrill, a licensed clinical social worker at Yale Children's Hospital who works at the Regional Lead Treatment Center. Uh, all of this information, Casey, is pretty bleak and it's worrisome. Can you talk about the process if a homeowner or a renter uh, finds out their, you know, someone in their home is, uh, has been poisoned by lead? What's the process to remediate the home or have lead abatement? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, it's it's a long and um, complicated process, unfortunately. But um, different cities in the state actually treat um, the process differently. So for um, New Haven, for example, the health department and the lead inspectors there um, because of COVID and everything, they won't come out and do an in-person um, inspection unless the child tests at a 20 or higher or a 15 or higher twice within three months. Um, in that case, they will come out and do an in-person inspection. But New Haven is really great about at least being aware of um, any child in the state that tests above a five. Um, so in that case, they will... Um, do a phone call, they'll do an, ep an epidemiological survey um, via phone call with the family. And then I will also um, call the family and do a home assessment. And basically what I do is I talk to them about where the exposure is most likely occurring um, while we wait for the health department to come in and do their inspection. And then I offer ideas about what they can do in the interim. And those um, that solution is, is kind of threefold. Um, the first thing is to focus on diet. So the child should increase um, their, their foods that are rich in calcium and iron um, because those two things will act as a shield in the stomach against lead. 
The second thing is to clean regularly um, and intentionally. So while you're cleaning, um, preferably with a Swiffer, you can be intentional and know that there might be a fine layer of that lead-based dust on the floors. Um, you can also wet wipe any windowsills that might have dust on it or any um, lead-based paint chips. And then the third thing is barring access to whatever um, leaded areas are found. And so I kind of work in the middle between um, the hospital and then the health department to try to make sure that it's basically all hands on deck to, to try to figure out um, where the lead is coming from and what we can do to better the situation to remediate the issue. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few key things that you can look for. The first is just knowing when your home was built. Like I said, prior to 1978, that's a huge key. Um, and the next thing is to look for any chipping, cracking, or peeling paint. So lead, um, it's, it's pretty easy to spot when you know what you're looking for. It will crack in a um, crisscross pattern. It kind of looks like alligator skin. Um, and so if there's any paint around your home that kind of looks like alligator skin when it cracks, that's most likely leaded. Um, but those three things, the diet, the cleaning, and then barring access to those chipping um, areas are kind of the three most important things in, in remediating the issue. Mm -hmm. And those are good tips. Thank you, Casey, for sharing that. And before we head to break, I wanted you to respond, uh, Casey, to what uh, Jen had talked about. Because we're in a pandemic, uh, parents are maybe not taking their children in to see the pediatrician. Uh, are you concerned about what this means for these regular screenings that need to happen? Yeah, I, I think that um, the families that I work with have been pretty great about continuing to bring the kids in for screenings um, despite the pandemic. But I, I do agree with what Jennifer said that, um, you know, especially now in a pandemic, people are trapped inside their homes, which um, could be leaded. And so there's this extra amount of time that is um, spent inside where there could be hazardous material lying around that the parents don't know about. But um, I would still encourage parents to go in and, and get the um, screening done and even pregnant women as well to go in and get tested for lead. Um, at least Yale, they're very good about asking those um, screening questions before you can even make an appointment. And um, they, they test your their temperature and you can only bring in the child that is due for testing and then the guardian. So only two people at a time. Um, they're pretty great about being safe despite this pandemic. I would still encourage people to um, get that blood test done. You've been hearing Casey Merrill here on Where We Live, a licensed clinical social worker at Yale New Haven Health, and she works at the Regional Lead Treatment Center. Casey, thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Again, with us is Jennifer Frank. Uh, she's a freelance writer who's been reporting on lead poisoning for the CHIT, or Connecticut Health Investigative Team. And coming up, we're going to hear from a Connecticut mother about her family's story when they found out their young child had high levels of lead in her blood. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, we know many of you tune into Where We Live on your radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. But if you can't listen live, whether it's the morning at 9 or evenings at 8, our rebroadcast, you can subscribe to Where We Live on your favorite podcast app.
Now, today we're talking about lead poisoning and the risk to children in our state. My guest is Jennifer Frank, who's reported on lead for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team. And we wanted to focus on the personal impact of this issue on a local family. So joining us now on Zoom is Elizabeth Benton. She's a mother from West Hartford. And back in 2018, she submitted testimony before a legislative committee that was looking at a bill to create a task force to study lead abatement. That particular bill ended up not moving forward. Elizabeth, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So tell us when you found out that your young child had been exposed to lead. So it was back in 2015. Our daughter was not yet two years old, and it was a paint job gone wrong. We we bought a old fixer upper in West Hartford and it needed an exterior paint job. And based on the age of our home, 100 years old, we knew that it had lead paint. Um, So when we went to hire a painter, we spoke about the lead precautions, we spoke about our concerns, we spoke about the age of our daughter. Um, And then the work started. And there were immediate concerns. Uh, There were lead paint chips um, all around our property. The uh, chips weren't cleaned up at the end of the day. Our windows were open. Um, And this was all when, you know, our daughter was a toddler and she was at this age where everything was going into the mouth. And, you know, we knew about the dangers of paint chips. And I think what we just were not aware of was the insidiousness of the dust itself. And so at some point, our daughter ingested lead dust. And after a few days, um, while that work was going on, the paint job was going on, we started to notice um, kind of unusual crankiness. She was having a hard time sleeping um, and Based on, you know, our concerns about the quality of the work going on, the safety of the work and her unusual behavior, we decided just to err on the side of caution and go get her blood tested. Um, And we were shocked when her blood level came back at nearly 30 micrograms per deciliter. So that was six times the limit for what they would call lead poisoning. Oh my gosh, that sounds like such a nightmare. When you got the results, what ha- what happened? What did you do? Um, so first, um, it was paralyzing terror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I remember sitting in the doctor's office with her and asking the doctor, "Is she going to be okay? Is she going to have you know lasting brain damage?" And expecting, you know, the doctor to reassure me. And he couldn't, he said, you know, I, I don't know. And so they rushed her to the um, Connecticut Children's Medical Center where they retested her blood, um, confirmed the level. Um, and then we went home and, you know, we, you know, we knew a few tips, I think that night you know, I think we basically that night, I remember just not letting her out of her crib. Um, and then the very next day we left um, and we went to an apartment um, that my brother had been staying in. And thankfully he was gone for the summer. Um, so we got out of the house. Um, and um, like Casey said, 
we put her on what was called the cheeseburger diet, you know, high calcium, high mm-hmm. iron, just to leach the lead out of her blood. Her lead levels were high, but not high enough for what they call chelation, like the medical treatment that would really pull the, the lead out of her blood. All we could do is get her away from the exposure and, and feed her that diet. Um, and then it triggered all of the, the various um, interventions that you've been discussing with the local mm. health department. So while we were out of the house, um, we were required to hire a lead abatement consultant and to fully remediate our home. Um, and that involved not just remediating the paint job, but every source of lead in our house had to be either encapsulated or removed. Um, and that involved, you know, we had to replace every single window in the house because the friction from opening and shutting a window causes lead dust. We had to encapsulate every, what they call a chewable surface. Um, and, um, you had to scrape it and encapsulate it. We had to remove our garage doors and replace our garage doors because of the friction they cause. Um, every surface was tested, um, you know, and, and it's surprising what you find. You know, some of the radiators were painted with lead paint. Some weren't. Some of the rooms had lead paint on the walls that needed to be encapsulated. Some didn't. Um, there are some areas where you could tell by looking and some areas where you really just would have no idea. Our mm. rugs had to be cleaned. We had to throw away all of our air conditioners. Um, so this was a process that took us. We left our home in July and we weren't back until Christmas. And I can only imagine how much this cost, Elizabeth. When this was all said and done, how much did you have to spend to make your home safe? You know, it was... Um, probably in the ballpark of around $170,000 to fix our home, to pay for alternative housing while we were outside of the home. Um, and we really had no choice. You know, we could not return to our home until we checked all of those boxes. Um, you couldn't sell a home in that condition. Um, so we really were... Um, we didn't have any other option. Um, and ultimately we, there were legal proceedings and we recouped the cost of a lot of that um, from the painters. Um, but it was a long and uncertain process and mm-hmm. um, I don't wish it on anyone. You've been hearing Elizabeth Benton again. She's a mother from West Hartford who found out back in 2015 uh, when they were doing work on their home that her daughter had six times uh, the level of what's considered lead poisoning uh, when she was tested uh, in her blood. How is she doing today, Elizabeth? She's doing great. Um, And that's really the only silver lining in a really horrible story um, that we caught her lead exposure so um, so soon and we were able to remove her from the source of the poisoning um, that her lead levels dropped very quickly um, and doctors don't believe she's had any lasting brain damage. But there's really not a day that goes by as a parent that went through this kind of ordeal um, that there isn't that worry in the back of your head 
Um, you know, anytime a you know seven year old has a temper tantrum and you wonder, is this because of the lead? Um, thankfully, she's doing great in school. She's a great kid. Um, but there's that guilt that never goes away and that terror that never goes away. You know, every time we see, you know, a fleck of white on the ground, we jump, pull the kids back. Is it a lead paint chip? No, it's, you know, a piece of cut up paper, but that, that fear and that guilt never goes away. Your story is so important, Elizabeth, but when we think about uh, the reporting that Jennifer Frank has done, the communities that are impacted by this, your story is not representative of, of families uh, um, who may not have a place to go and may not have the, the resources to do the full lead abatement. And I, as I mentioned, you have submitted testimony to state lawmakers uh, on this issue. What would you like to see happen at the Capitol? You know, I think about that every day. Um, the fact that we were able to leave our home immediately and that we were able to remediate the source of the threat completely. Um, and that was really what saved my daughter's life. And that that's just not going on in the vast majority of cases across Connecticut. And the vast majority of kids do not have that same happy ending that my daughter has. Um, and that's, shameful. Um, and I don't put it at the feet of the state entirely. Mm. Um, but I think we all need to do better by these children who are trapped in homes that are not safe. You know, when we think about the families in Jennifer's story that don't have the choice to leave their home and have to rely on a landlord to remediate the damage in many cases while they're still living in the home that is poisoning their child. And that is a shame. It's unacceptable and it's tragic. Mm. Um, Jennifer and Frank, I would I... like to see, um, you know, more funding available for complete mm. remediation before children are poisoned. I think Jennifer has made this point really eloquently that we wait for a child to be poisoned before we go in and we remove the lead. And we know the lead is there. We know yes, it's but I wanted there. to I wanted to ask uh, Jennifer Frank uh, to jump back in before we have to end the show. Uh, Jennifer, uh, what are you hearing from lawmakers? And again, if you could just briefly describe how our law looks a little bit different than other New England states. Uh, yeah, what I'm, uh, with my latest story, I did hear from, um, uh, two or three lawmakers who said that they would be interested in in doing something to tighten Connecticut laws, um, and I it really can't come too soon. You know, I I know this is in some ways the worst time to do anything uh, uh, given COVID, but you know, number one, there's never a good time to do something like this. And as the, the uh, legislature has shown over the past few years, there really doesn't seem to be much of a will or there hasn't been much of a will, but this is very much a social justice issue. Uh, just look at the numbers, the numbers show you this. And if you look at Connecticut compared to other states, I mean, other, particularly New England states, um, uh, all of the other states, all five of the other states do a better job. Their laws are better. 
uh, Rhode Island and New Hampshire require um, uh, contacting parents at three micrograms. Um, uh, Vermont and New Hampshire have uh, they have annual compliance laws on the uh, part of landlords. Um, Massachusetts and other states uh, have a database that if you're uh, buying a home or renting a home in Massachusetts, you can check their database to see if there's been any um, any lead issues, if it's lead compliant. And I just do want to say that we don't have to go too far afield. If we look at Bridgeport, uh, the largest city, and in some ways the poorest city, Bridgeport is doing a better job than any other uh, municipality I have found in Connecticut. Uh, uh, the head of their lead prevention program has arranged it so the lead inspectors are working with the housing code inspectors. They're coordinating. What a that sounds that's I'm really glad to hear that yes. uh, Jennifer Frank again uh, she's written for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team thank you for letting us know about this very important issue and Elizabeth Benton thank you for sharing uh, your family story we really appreciate it